This meeting is being live streamed. This is Value After Hours. I am Tobias Carlyle, joined as always by my co-host, Jake Taylor. Our special guests today are Justin Carmona and Jack Forehand of Validia. How do I go, fellas? How are you? <laughs> Good, how are you? How are you? Welcome, gents. Good to be what's, here. What's, uh, what's Validia for the folks who haven't um, encountered you before? So Validia is, um, there's really two different businesses, but let's just, we'll talk about the research business because that's what most people might know us um, as is Validia is a independent investment research company. Um, the, the website is Validia, V-A-L-I-D-E-A. And on Validia, we run a series of investment strategies based off of the publicly disclosed methods from great investors, people like Peter Lynch, Benjamin Graham, Warren Buffett, and then a whole host of other strategies that have been written about in books, books and or academic papers. Um, and you know what we look for is strategies that have kind of proven the test of time. For the most, you know, some of the guru strategies don't have back tests behind them, but all the other strategies beyond those famous investors kind of come with significant back tests um, and are all based on sort of fundamental. Do you guys recreate the back tests, or do you use the? We use the, we, we kind of codify the model and start running the model and start tracking the performance of it from the time it goes on the Validia site. Actually, there's a little bit of, um, I should, uh, let, let me restate. Some of our models start way back in 03. Those are all live. And then there was a second set of models that we rolled out. And some of that performance is back tested. Some of it is actual like live out of sample. Yeah. A lot, a lot of the strategies are tested in the research a lot further back than we can go. I mean, they'll go back decades. So we don't do that, but we will try to, you know, when we put a new model on our site, people want to have some idea how it's done, what they're getting, because if you put it and like start the performance on time zero, there's really nothing there. So we right. typically will put, you know, we haven't added a model in, in many years, but when, when we do, we typically will include some, we'll run testing historically and include some performance with it as well. That's one of the reasons I love chatting to you guys, because you have a good idea what sort of worked last year that was actually uh, what actually implemented. So let's start there. What what happened last year? What worked? What didn't work? So I'm going. I should have had this up pre. And how and how did you create the uh, the Kathy model? What's sort of <laughs> which one? Kathy Wood. Oh yeah, oh. that is one thing you cannot model, um, as far as I can tell. At least not with factors. <laughs> So it's funny, we have like a separate tool that's like an ETF factor report where we try to get like value and momentum and all these different exposures of ETFs. And if you look at that ETF, it is like zero across the board. There's like no quality, there's no value, there's no nothing. Um, there's no low volatility, like not, not to say that it's a bad strategy, but it's not a strategy that's driven by any kind of the investment factors we look at. Is it negative? Is it like- uh, Inversely. Uh, yeah, inverse to any factors. Well, we, we percentile rank everything. So one to 99. So the lowest you could possibly be is one, but there's a lot of, a lot of the scores, like last time I looked at least were 10 and below, which means, you know, yeah, basically no exposure to any of these factors. I mean, it'll have momentum sometimes when those types of stocks are doing well, but outside of that, you know, I've never really seen, seen it have much exposure to anything else. So last year was like kind of an interesting year. I mean, you guys have talked about this and we know it, like, obviously the leadership was super narrow coming into whatever, October, November, then like things exploded. So like, when you get that type of explosive move, because we run such, on Validity, we run 10 and 20 soft models. So it, it's so super concentrated that just from a rebalancing and like timing standpoint, if like a model, like the best performing model last year um, was a value model based on Ken Fisher's Super Stocks book, which goes way, way back to like whenever he wrote that in like the 90s or something like that. Ken Fisher doesn't even follow that. But it's like kind of a value, a lot of cyclicals get in there. And, um, but then, also at the top of the pack was some growth models, which is what you might expect. So it was a weird year in the sense that like, it's not like all the growth strategies or all the value strategies were like on top or leading the way. It was it was kind of a weird mix. And then it's a, a lot of times important to look at like what didn't do well. And so like um, the Greenblatt magic formula model didn't keep up with the market. Uh, we run a strategy based on, and we've had him on the podcast. He knows this, Pim Van Vliet. At Robico, he runs like a low volatility conservative strategy. That was actually like the worst performer. Um, the surprising thing there is that's kind of high on quality, but you know something about low vol just didn't work last year, probably because of what happened at the end of the year. Was it and a the, high the, vol year? 
It's, you know, it's, it's kind of weird because we aren't a great judge of like whether value is working or whether quality is working because of their 10 and 20 stock models. There's a lot of like idiosyncratic things with individual companies. Like the extreme version of that is like back in 2021, we had a couple of models that had GameStop. And so like whatever happened to those models doesn't in that year doesn't necessarily tell you a lot about the model itself, because if you have 10 stocks and one of them's GameStop, you know, the whole thing is going to go crazy. So we, we can kind of see a little randomness there in terms of, yeah, if value is doing well, like on average, our value models will do better. But we also have like the outliers in both different directions because they're such they're so focused and they're so dependent on the individual names in there. That's one of the reasons that I like it, though, because the, the sort of idiosyncratic application of it is so much more valuable than like the back tested, you know, theoretical application of it. Yeah, like we like the high octane version of these things, um, which is which is why we have them there. Um, but you know, and we we think you know if you're going to have these right these strategies with these criteria, let's find the stocks that meet them as closely as possible. You know, let's not go to 200 names. Let's really do it aggressively. But it goes hand in hand with the idea that you know you're going to have these individual positions. They're going to have a huge impact. And you know, sometimes if one of them's a, a really bad position, it can have a big negative impact in a year. Or if it's GameStop, it can have a really positive impact. But I always try to keep that in mind when I'm looking at any of the performance in any given year, knowing that it could be like one or two stocks that were a huge part of it. And the other thing that's just worth mentioning is that when we initially developed this, we wanted to make it so these models were like actually followable and implementable for your average investor. I mean, most of the people that use Validia, not all, we have some professionals, but, you know, we get a lot of retail investors. So, you know, if you're trying to follow a systematic strategy or portfolio and and remember, this is back way back in 03, and we haven't like expanded the portfolio size, but following like tw 20 or more stocks can get, even if you're doing it systematically, it can get kind of tough to do. So we tried to make it so these strategies are pretty easy and straightforward to follow. How often are you rebalancing? It all depends on the strategy. So yeah, so, we go ahead, go ahead Jack. We, we do it four different ways for every strategy. Because we, we try to give people as much information as possible and, and not to say, here's the best thing or here's the best, you know, this works better than this. So we do all of them. We test them all monthly, quarterly, annually. And then we have one we call tax efficient, which is basically a monthly one where it's trying to limit the turnover. So it doesn't have like the regular monthly ones have pretty high turnover. So the, the tax efficient is like a lower turnover monthly. And we have the performance of all of them using each one of the rebalancing. So anybody can look at any one of the strategies and say, how did this one perform annually rebalance? How did it perform quarterly rebalance? And you know what you find is kind of what you'd expect. The, the value stuff tends will tend to do better or at least the same with the less frequent rebalancing and the momentum and growth stuff tends to need, need to be rebalanced more often for it to work, um, which is kind of what you'd expect probably going in. Do you ever show uh, the correlations between them so you could find two that are, you know, yes. uncorrelated? We, and we actually have an, we actually have like a correlation. We have a little tool on the site for that. So, yeah. Um, so I can choose the acquirers multiple, which is a never, strategy we know. Very, never heard of it. Never heard some, of that. Never heard of that day. guy. Um, but and look at like you know very uncorrelated with the uh, multi-factor Pimbambalit conservative stock strategy. Interestingly enough, and the next one is. The momentum model, which is what you expect, um, given and the what we're value. what we're looking at there is the correlation of the excess returns, because obviously if we just look at the correlation of the pure returns, they end up being pretty correlated because of the you know the beta. beta. Yeah. So yeah, we're pulling out the excess returns and looking at the correlation of the excess returns with each other to try to get a better picture of like what's actually not correlated with what. Yeah, that's very interesting. Let me just give a shout out to the listeners: Petr Tikva, Israel, first in the house; Senator Domingo, Dino in Townsville. What's happening? Early stuff here: Chapel Hill. Offenberg, Sweden, uh, Montenegro, Sherwood, Oregon, Toronto, Milwaukee, Valparaiso, Antigonish, Nova Scotia, Canada, Bangalore, Brandon, Mississippi, Durham, Savon, Lina, Finland, Pristina, Kosovo, Longville, Scotland, Dead Cat Gully, New South Wales. Yeah, me too. Somehow. <laughs> Uh, I've jumped over a few, sorry, Braunschweig, Germany, Stockholm, Sweden, Nashville, Tennessee, Las Vegas, Toronto. Oh my God. Sweden, Hamburg, Germany, Germany what? Wilmot, Wilmot, Illinois with a VPN through Nijmegen, Netherlands, back in oil field. What's up? Edinburgh and Patrick Holland in Hong Kong. What's up, Patrick? I went to school with Patrick. I went to primary school with Patrick. What's happening, Patrick? Good author. Check his name out. What's happening, fellas? We're back. That's this is your life. Your <laughs> <laughs> um, just before we came on, so Jake sent through this crazy chart that shows the price to book value of the China stocks 
first Do you want me to explain that, that Yeah, yeah, you, you explain it. Uh, yeah, so it was NASDAQ 100, price to book, and has eclipsed China price to earnings ratios. So these ratios, I mean, you and granted, like the caveat of NASDAQ being very tech heavy and Gap not doing a great job of capitalizing on the balance sheet, uh, you know, code. So therefore book values are, are, uh, you know, they're, they're suspect a little bit when it comes to, to tech companies. But with that caveat in mind, um, yes, the relative just absolute disconnect in, um, valuations between China and US tech has gotten so extreme that the price to book of one is now higher than the, the price to earnings of the other. Yeah, that's crazy. So, so what did you get book at? Was like book for book for China was like oh sorry, book for the Nasdaq was about five times. And you don't have book yeah, book for Nasdaq is yeah, it's in the five plus range. It's probably six or seven. And then the uh PE for China is down below that number. <laughs> well, th- I mean, think about this. Think about with you know your average U.S. investor portfolio now. How much home country bias is just there? Because I mean, you, you know, U.S. has just clobbered everything over the last fifteen years, and it's just crazy. And at some point, you know, it might not be China, but international diversification is going to be important, and that's kind of something that's probably being lost a little bit. Or a lot in investors' portfolios. I saw so you, profit margins in China right now are roughly five percent, and U.S. is more like thirteen. Okay. So, you know, there's a little. I mean, obviously, the the business quality is is quite different too. But boy, I mean, almost three times the margin. I mean, how can that go on forever? I don't know. That seems like a a difficult bet to make. China said pretty good consumer discretionary, which unlike the rest of the world, so US has got unusual in that it's got so many big consumer discretionary. It's got like, I mean, I, I lump in Google and Microsoft and Netflix and all those sort of the FANG, FAN Mag, Mag7, whatever we're calling them these days. Whereas a lot of the other countries in the world don't. A lot of the other countries in the world are sort of heavily mining and resources or basic materials and fi- financials. Whereas China actually has some of that stuff. So I always thought they had a higher quality stock market then many of the other countries in the world not reflected in the in the margins though no and like return on assets are are a fair amount lower than us return on equities lower um it's still a pretty heavy relatively heavy industry of course you have their national champions like the 10 cents and alibaba's and pinduoduo but but yeah it's it's not quite one of you guys was saying that the the there's a big bifurcation between the performance of the economy and the performance of the stock market in China. Yeah, well, that was, I think it was Economic who, uh, Jake, who shared that on Twitter. Like, I think the economy's up, you know, several fold over whatever it is, 20 years or whatever it is. And like the stock market's up zero. So, you know, the whole idea of like the economy is not the stock market. You know, if you want an example to prove that, that's the example. Like, the economy's gone crazy and the stock market has literally returned zero. Um, you know, that, that's, a, that's a pretty amazing stat. There's that famous uh, triumph of the optimists that uh, it comes out once a year and they update mm-hmm. all the data for the world. And that's that Dimson, Elroy yeah. Dimson, Marsh, Staunton, something like that. Yeah, Marsh and Dimson. Dimson, that's right. And they they, they had looked at, they, they made the comparison. I put this in one of my books, like a 2004, I think it was in Deep Value, where they looked at the performance of China as a, an economy and the performance of its stock market versus the performance of England as an economy and the performance of its stock market. And the, even though England is sort of eclipsed in 1950 and sort of losing its global dominance since 1950, the stock market had massively outperformed, whereas China's been growing phenomenally quickly through that whole period. But the stock market performance has been nothing like even England's stock market performance. And the the the, the reason is that you're just overpaying for China. And it's clear when you look at the chart that Jake was talking about earlier, in Chinese stock market in terms of a PE basis peaked in 2008 and it's been compressing since 2008, which is a long time. It's like being a value investor. Multiples running against you for like 16 years, something like that. That can happen. I mean, that's, uh, I mean, Buffett's pointed out that sort of 17 year cycle 
in the US even of and that was like the 20th As century. But... Yeah, and before that though you had <clears throat> whatever 6 to 82. Six, yeah, 65 to to 82 where you you went nowhere. Um and on a real basis I think it was even worse. But yeah, there's there's lots of there's lots of doldrums to to sail through in this ocean. It's not always just up and to the right. I guess what I don't know about it, the Chinese market is, you know, how, you know, you think about uh, U.S. the U.S. market, U.S. investors, and how you know much exposure we have to the stock market as investors here, um, and how that's grown over the last like twenty five years in terms of. Or even maybe since the '60s or '70s, you know, it used to be pension plans, and then you know, now most most of the time, people are investing in stocks to save for the retirement. I don't know in China how their consumers sort the of penetration embrace is. their market. Yeah, the penetration. So it's like you know, you could kind of see if that's because you know you hear about the wages in China and how much they, I, I, you know, so it's interesting, and and you would think there'd be global demand for their equities, the sh- shares in China, but. You know, I, I think to some extent what happened in with Russia and Ukraine and, and the sanctions there, you know, that could put that certainly puts some risk in terms of ex- exposure to the Chinese market in the sense that something goes down with Taiwan or something like that. So it could be that overhang as well that, you know, is kind of affecting things. Also, as we've discussed in the context of Alibaba, that you're not entirely clear, it's not entirely clear what your ownership interest is. It's it's through those VIE those vehicles, which Jake knows a lot more about than I do, but that you, you don't have direct ownership. You've got this like uh, proxy ownership and it's not clear what your rights are. It's hard to enforce them ultimately. What do you guys think about like international investing in general has just been such a challenge like to talk to investors about because it's been so bad for such a long time. But, you know, the theory is is very strong. You know, it, you're more diversified. There's There's probably no reason to believe that over like a really, really long period of time, the US should just beat the rest of the world. How do you think about that? Like it's it's really hard, like when you're when you're talking to investors, because the theory is really sound, but the practice has been horrible for so long. Like it's kind of a challenge to think about like what do you do going forward? Like US only has been great. It's worked really well. Like people say, why would I change it? It's been working. But like the theory would tell you you probably should have the international too. And in addition to that, they would say all of the US companies have got this global exposure. But you get you don't have to worry about the you don't have to worry about that VIE problem. You don't have to worry about foreign taxes. You can invest domestically and get the foreign exposure because all of their revenues are increasingly from overseas. That's right, and that's Corey Hofstein when he was on our podcast made that point. Like you're you're getting a lot of you are getting a lot of international exposure by owning U.S. companies. So you know you you may not need like that additional international exposure. I would say if you own Starbucks, you are making an implicit bet on the health of China. <laughs> Or Nike, that is true. or Apple, or any of those, really. Jack, do you want to walk us through your data mining paper? Oh, sure. The, the, yeah, we had a, uh, it was actually very interesting. We had a couple of researchers on our podcast that's coming out this Thursday. And so we have this idea, like in investing, like in, in factor investing, if, if whether it's value or whether it's momentum, that you know, if a factor works in testing and I want it to continue working going, going forward, I need some explanation as to why it works. And so typically what researchers will come up with is these risk-based and the behavioral explanation, which is the risk base is pretty straightforward. You know, value stocks typically are riskier. You'd expect, you know, they have problems with their businesses. They're cheap. They're riskier than the market. I would want an excess return for that risk. On the other side, the behavioral side would be people overestimate the problems with value companies. They beat down their stock prices. That's for people who are willing to buy those stocks. If they've overestimated the problems, that's an opportunity. So typically those are the two explanations for like any factor that we've used going historically to say, here's why they should persist in the future. Well, we had some a couple of researchers, uh, Andrew Chen from the Federal Reserve and uh, Alejandro Lopez-Lira from the University of Florida on our podcast this week. And the idea they came up with is they said, all right, let's test this. So let's take all the factors that have a risk-based explanation. Let's take the factors that have a behavioral explanation. And then let's do a third group and let's just data mine the crap out of the accounting database. So basically let's just divide everything by everything. Let's come up with the ratios that do the best and then let's use those as on a standalone basis. And then let's take these three groups. We'll do it the same period Fama and French use. So the testing period ends in like the early 90s. And then let's see out of sample from the early 90s forward how they work. And the answer is there's zero difference between the ones that have the risk-based <laughs> explanation, the ones that have the behavioral explanation, and the ones that were just purely mined, um, which is 
will challenge a lot of the theory that a lot of us that are factor investors, you know, base what we do on if that ends up being true. So for instance, like I asked him on the podcast. So like one of the examples I think was something like property, plant and equipment divided by cost of goods sold, something like that, something you would never divide in the real world. But that had, you know, a similar return in sample and a similar return out of sample to something like momentum. And so what they were saying is basically, there's really no reason you could say momentum is better than property, plant and equipment divided by cost of goods sold. Um, so it's it's a really interesting thing, like just to say like, and we were talking before we came on talking about like Robert Mercer um, at Renaissance. And, you know, they've said all along that like some of their factors that work best are the ones that have zero explanation or the ones that make no sense. And it's just an interesting thing to think about going forward. We all rely on like these explanations as to why these factors work. And if, and if we test them and we, we don't have an explanation, then we shouldn't use them. But what what if the ones that have no explanation perform just as well as the ones that do? Um, you know, I, I don't I don't know the answer to it. I mean, certainly academics that are smarter than me are testing this stuff, but I, I thought it was an interesting paper and it, it's an interesting conclusion. Yeah, they're almost like, like uh, you know, they're they're almost polytheistic, you know, like let's just worship all of the gods, uh, you know, whereas you know, maybe Toby's a little bit more monotheistic of worshiping at the the value uh god. <laughs> yeah, or like true. even you can even worship at like I have no idea why this is working, which is like a which is a whole different change from like whether you're a momentum guy or a growth guy or a value guy, like you usually have some basis for it. Like this is like I'm dividing numbers. I have no reason to believe that dividing these numbers, other than the fact that, you know, there's a lot of evidence that accounting data does impact stock prices. You know, that they did something else in the paper where they tested just mining tickers as opposed to accounting data. And they found no results there. Like they, they couldn't get any good results out of just mining tickers. So there is something about accounting data where it is meaningful in terms of stock prices. It's just like the ratios we're used to thinking about, they, were, they weren't thinking about like, here's what I should test because I think it works. It was more like, just throw it all together and, and whatever works, you know, that persists just as well as the ones we could explain. I mean, is it possible though, in that, in sort of a, like, you know, monkeys typing Hamlet way that, there's just simply not enough data there to actually make that kind of claim. I mean, I know they're looking at pretty large data sets, but if you're going to just throw random numbers together, like you can, you can kind of like find things that will match over some period of time. But I would imagine like you need a, just a big ass data set to actually feel good about betting on that going forward. Don't you think? Yeah, no, I would think so. I think there's, there's definitely some randomness to that. Yeah, um, but you the, could also the, argue the noise that, element. Yeah, there's like exactly. so much noise to filter that much noise out. You just need a huge sample size. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and also like there's a behavioral argument for, you know, and they're not saying that the factors that have explanations don't work out of sample. They're just saying they work the same as the ones that don't have explanations. So it's not really a challenge of like factor investing doesn't work. It's yeah. really a challenge of you know do we need these explanations you know for what we use. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know the answer to it. Post, I, mean, I was thinking, talk rationalization. <laughs> exactly. You know, but there's arguments also, like we asked them in the podcast, like, do you, with the regular factors, you know, did people mine the data to come up with book to market or and come up with the explanation after the fact, or did they have the explanation first and then find book to market in the data? And like they said, they really didn't know, like it depended on who who did it. And so you, you could kind of argue the other factors did it as well. So, you know, it's not something I really have a strong opinion on yet, but I just think it's really interesting. Like I love... The more I've been in the markets, the more I learned to like challenge, you know, what I've learned and to say like, not to have like these hard and fast beliefs and say, no matter what, I believe you have to have an explanation for a factor. You know, I, I want to like be open-minded to this kind of stuff. So I thought I was really interested from that perspective. I'll have to ask Jim O'Shaughnessy next time I see him, well, what was he doing? Did he, did he show up with the <laughs> answers already and then try to back solve or was he, uh, <laughs> was he following a more scientific approach? I always thought it would be interesting to do like a, uh, like it would, no one would ever buy it, but if you did like a factor ETF, like X, the ones that actually make sense. Right. So you like did an ETF of just the ones that don't make any sense and used it as like a diversifying complement to your, your standard factor exposure. Um, it would be interesting. I mean, no one would ever invest in it, but uh, there's so many, I mean, every ETF's taken oh, these you, days, that's at least one that would be, it would be novel. Wrap, I'm sure Definitely. you can wrap a narrative around it. I'm sure you could say it's like the, uh, we're just looking for signals where like, uh, you know, what's the, what's the firm medallion? What, what's that firm? Brief and medallion. Awesome. Sorry, yeah. what's it called? Rent, Rentech. Renaissance. Oh, oh yeah, Rentech. Rent, yeah. rent so Renaissance, they're just open about the fact that they don't have any 
there's no explanation. We're just going to test everything. But what you'd expect to find, if you test tens of thousands of ratios through one data set, and then you find all of the ones that worked in that first data set, and then you test them again through a second data set, there would be something that would survive. Just by pure chance, there are going to be things that survive through both data sets. I mean, and then, the, but the, I think the more scary thing is what it says about momentum and probably value and other things too, that you can't even demonstrate that they are having survived two sets that even though there's an explanation, like they're really, they're no better than the things that are cooked up by the computer. And what was interesting too, is they all out of sample, they, you know, it, it's widely known that like value out of samples had a lower premium than it did pre-1991. Um, these are the ones that couldn't be explained did as well. Not as much, but, you know, mm. I, I can understand value going down. You could say, all right, people became aware of it. They started following it. You know, the premiums are less, but like cost of goods sold divided pro by property, plant and equipment, like those also deteriorated um, out of sample. So, you know, I, I don't really, we tried to understand that and I don't really completely understand yet why that happened. That doesn't make any sense at all. Well, I heard... Uh... I thought what their research showed back to the tickers was uh, things with Z definitely underperformed. <laughs> tickers, <laughs> yeah, don't don't use Z. You gotta you gotta you gotta go, go A, A yeah, tri talk. triple A. That's the get to the front of the phone book. <laughs> triple Z. I've got a note here saying value, but I can't remember why I wrote down value. Just mm. probably just came to my head. I often write that down on stuff. Were we talking value before we came on? I don't remember. We might have been. I'm sure we always talk value, so I'm sure we were. Uh, when's when's value going to turn around? That's that's the question I ask all of my guests. <laughs> no motivated reasoning here. I don't Just know. A... It, you know, it seemed to me like coming into this year, it just seemed like the consensus was, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but it was like, you know, growth had a pretty good, I mean, a lot of things had a pretty good year last year. If you include the fourth quarter, which you got to include that. So it ended up being decent for a lot of different strategies. I mean, growth certainly was the leader, but then it, it sort of seemed like the consensus coming into this year was, you know, small cap value catch up. And, you know, anytime I kind of start hearing that too often, anything too often, it seems yeah. like, it seems like the obvious it. trade. Yeah. So I don't know. Um, and, and, you know, kind of with our experience in running these concentrated value strategies, and we, we've talked about this is, you know, it's very episodic. You get, you know, it's the best performance comes off the times when it's sort of the scariest and when value has been pounded. And then you get that, that massive return. It's not this like nice step up, at least in our types of value strategies. It's not like this nice step up churning out, you know, smooth consistent return. So yeah, it's, it's not that smooth 12 versus lumpy 15. It's more like zero and then 50. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I saw, I saw a few articles over the last few weeks that say when small and value have a bad start to the year like this, it tends to be not an indication that the year is going to be bad, but that small and value will catch up over the course of the year. And they, there's not a lot of ends. It was like eight or something like that, but they said seven out of eight ends have been the year's been very ended up being very strong for small and value. Oh, that sounds like highly motivated reasoning to me. Oh my, my gosh! My my my. We'll take it if we can get it. Yeah, my, my bearishness tends to suggest that when you have a, a a weak start to the year for small and value, it's going to be a weak year all around. But that's not the case. I'm I'm picturing you like it's taped up to the wall. There's like strings <laughs> running all over the place. <laughs> yeah, I've given up the macro. I've given yeah. up the macro for for New Year's. That's my New Year's resolution for Lent. I mean, you could kind of see if, I mean, at, when when rates were going higher, you know, stocks that were more dependent on financing in the small cap space, you know, you can make an argument that, you know, clearly they're going to be affected by higher rates, higher financing costs. And so, you know, that kind of flows down through to profitability. So on the backside of it, you know, lower rates, um, you know, should be favorable for those companies that are more dependent on debt. Um, and there's a lot of, that's a thing with small caps as a group, there's just a lot of junky stuff in there. Uh, so. And yet know, the high yield spread never went anywhere. Hardly. I mean, it's it, even when it was like, there was a lot of narrative about questioning. Yeah. Financing. No, right. It was like, that didn't blow out. Right. That's yeah. that, the option adjusted high yield spread, that data series that the fed, it, that, that seems to be coincident with crashes. It really doesn't get going until. You know, you already, it's, I, don't, I don't know what information it provides. Like if you find that you're in a big drawdown, then you go and check it. It's like, it's always 
blowing it triggered. up. Triggered. Yeah. It doesn't really help you. It's not predictive of anything. Didn't Dan Rasmussen did some work around that? And I thought it was like it, it led things by a few months or something like that when it spiked. I forget what it was, but it was it was actually a good indicator for value. You know, uh, when when you would see a spike in those in credit spreads. He uses it as a trigger when it gets over a set. I forget the number, but when we get to six, like six per, or seven six percent, percent spread, yeah, yeah, which is rare, rare. Like you can look through the data; it doesn't happen very often. But when it gets over that, the last time was two thousand twenty, right? That's probably right. He he uses that as his definition of a crisis. So it's time then to get to get more invested. It doesn't get triggered very often though. And, but you would know, like you you could easily say you could also say six percent on the OAS it would be equivalent to whatever it is ten or twenty, just on the spy being down. What's interesting, I got, I'm on this, actually, we've had him on the podcast. Um, who's the guy, the Schaefer, Colin Jack, the um, the value investor guy that wrote the book? I'm blanking out. Isn't Jim Cullen? Isn't that his? Yeah, Jim Cullen. I think he, and he, I think, I think the firm is Schaefer Cullen. Anyways, pretty decent sized value manager. And so I'm on his distribution list and they send out like a quarterly update. And it was just interesting. And he kind of writes like a, like a letter. It's he's, you know, talks about value investing sometimes, but he was, talking to an institutional consultant who they actually like work with because they have some institutional business, but that consultant was telling him that in the last, I think in the last like three to five years, like they've had very, very little searches for value. So even institutions aren't who you would think would be having this. Like I was thinking like, could you get like a, a big rebalance? Like I think BlackRock recently rebalanced into some that big ETF on the model portfolios. They saw a huge inflow into their value ETFs. And so you would think institutions at the asset allocation level, you know, they'd be looking at their exposures and saying, okay, you know, now we got to tilt more towards US value. And that starts with asking consultants to search the databases for value managers. Well, this consultant was telling this value manager that no consultant's doing that. So <laughs> no one's asking know, for you. <laughs> no, <laughs> no one's knocking at your door, buddy. So uh, it's pretty crazy. <clears throat> I, I, I definitely have seen something that there were major redemptions from value funds last year. There were a lot of money taken out. And I, I had heard, I've heard in other places that people were considering cutting their small and value exposure, which I think that they're, you know, a little bit, a little bit of both. I've, I've actually got a question on the, on the small, do you guys have any theories on, you know, the continued kind of beatings that the size factor is taking sort of alongside value? Yeah, not really. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a big believer in the size factor in general. Um, you know, I've kind of, that's, that's where a place where Wes Gray has helped me a lot, like come, come around in terms of like how I think through those things. Like I always used to be the guy that said, like, I was never a believer in the size factor, but I would always be the guy that said, well, value works better in the small cap space. Yeah. And I, I, what I had wrong about that is that can actually be true. But at the, what I had wrong about it is why value doesn't work better in the small cap space because they're small caps. Value works better in the small cap space because you can get more valueness in the small cap space. Mm. So if, if I expand my portfolio to small caps, I'm going to be able to get cheaper stocks. Yeah. So I'm actually getting more value, more so than I'm just getting exposure to size and like coupling it with value. So I've kind of come around over time to say like, you know, I don't, I don't really believe in using size really in any way. You know, I, I try to use the other factors, you know, and, and I think using like an all cap database where you get small cap in there gives you an opportunity to get more exposure typically to whatever factor you're looking at. You know, two Although things that's not that's necessarily true with quality. Two things that might be impacting that. These are just theories. I have no idea. But, you know, and I think Verdad has done some stuff that like the quality in the small cap space has deteriorated over time. And so if that's true, then you would think the market, you would, those would trade at a discount versus maybe a little bit higher quality. Um, that's that's one possible thing that could be sort of influencing that. The other thing is I wonder if, you know, the number of companies, correct me if I'm wrong here, Jack, I think the number of publicly traded stocks is it's very well low relative it's, to where it's come down trade. a lot. Yeah. There's, so, not for, there's, not, there's not enough stocks to make the wheelchair 5,000. There aren't 5,000 stocks. Do you know how many there are? Is it like I don't, it was is like it close or is it way off? 4,300, 4,600, something okay. like that. So, so Jack, are you, if, are you saying that it's it's not the size, it's how you use it? <laughs> I think that is true. What's the what's the AQR paper? Um, it's like size matters if you control your junk or whatever. <laughs> oh man, that's even better. Damn it, Cliff. <laughs> that's the that's the best research paper title of all time. It has to be. Um, I've I've never seen one better than that. Yeah, the um, stock kick's got a good good. 
Sarbanes Oxley and private equity. That's what I think. That's yeah. what I think. It's, it's, I think it. there's a big bifurcation mm. from Sarbanes Oxley when that came in because it increased the cost to be public by so much. I've heard previously- that's back down though. But like it, it was at one point, you know, over a million dollars of kind of extra friction, which can matter for a small company, but that now it's it's probably maybe a fifth of that. So I don't know. Well, that's the other thing too are, are the, the good companies staying private longer where normally maybe they would have come public before, you know, early on in their life cycle. And you get, you probably still would have gotten some, you know, a lot of companies fail, but you know, the ones that survive go on to become mid and large caps and sort of draw as they migrate up the chain. And now, um, you know, they're staying private longer and coming to the market, maybe more mature. I don't know. That's another. Also like one of the things I've noticed is when we look at our investable universe, like a lot of these a lot of the reduction in the number of public companies has come in companies you probably wouldn't be investing in anyway because they're very small and illiquid. So like our, our investable universe, I think it's like 2,700 now, that's come down over time, but it hasn't come down nearly as much as like the overall universe has because a lot of those companies were never in the investable universe anyway. Um, they were kind of fringe public companies that were, you know, we won't invest in anything that's not, let's say like below 150 million market cap and we need some liquidity as well. Like a lot of those companies that have gone away were outside of that you know, those parameters. One of the things I used to do when I was testing out of, because uh, Shaughnessy said, I forget what the what his cutoff was, but he used an absolute number cutoff, 25 million or something like that. When I tested it um, in 2008 or 2009 at the very bottom, Russell 2000, the smallest company in the Russell 2000 was a $29 million market cap. So you were chopping off a lot of the Russell 2000 as you went through this. So I, I changed my definition to make it a percentile. So you always have the same number in there. But it was kind of interesting. Like you, your universe grows and shrinks if you use an, which sort of makes absolute makes yep. sense. But if you, if, you, if you have that fixed number, I don't know, man. The, the, smalls, the smalls kill me a little bit because I, I, I think that you can put together portfolios that are better quality and cheaper than in the bigger market at the moment, at least, but they just seem to get, they're just punished regularly. Yeah. No, you, you introduced the, once you introduce the, that serious tracking area you introduce and you know, yeah, you can, you, you have to be willing to sit through it. Um, but I agree with you. I mean, you, you can find, you know, what you're looking for, you can find it a lot more in the small cap space a lot of the time, but you know, you've just got to be willing to look different. And, you know, for people like us who manage other people's money, they've got to be willing to look different too. And that's always been that's always been a balance like in our career is like how focused do we want to be and how much do we want to worry about tracking error and like trying to get those two right because you can't run these things. You know, my biggest lesson like coming from like just testing these things to running them in the real world is you can't just run the most aggressive high octane portfolio you want to in the real world and expect people to stick with it. You know, you have to have at least some standards in terms of like how much tracking error you're willing to take and how much tracking error people who follow it are willing to take. And, you know, that's been a lesson and I'll probably never get that balance right but it's something I've gotten better at, you know, as we've done it over time. To some extent, you're like Ken Hebner had the CGM focus fund, which is famously one that it, it returned something like 17% a year for for a decade. He was manager of the Morningstar manager of the decade in like 2011 or something like that. But if you look back a decade before, the average cash on cash return on his funds was like negative 11% because people sold at the bottom and bought back at the top. And it was- Yeah, and the, um, the actual return was like significantly positive, right? He, he, the funds were something like 17% yeah, compounds, but crazy. the average investor was negative 11%. I mean, you probably find the same thing in ARC, like the, yep. the, the money flows in exponentially as the, as the funds go up. And part of that creates some of the performance too, but equally it means that your cash on ca- the, the investor's cash on cash returns are always negative because when you take a header, you've got the bulk of your money has come in at the very top and it all gets and, you know, Fair out. home, CGM focus. I mean, a lot, a lot of those yeah. same idea. Like they all had the same thing, but it, it kind of creates a conundrum as a manager because like have, have those funds added value for people or not? Like on, on one hand, the fund could argue, well, here's my actual returns. This is what I put up. If you could, if you stayed the course, this is what you got. On the other hand, like, do you acknowledge the fact that people are going to do what they do? And, you know, I'm going to have a 30% investor return less than my actual return. Like I got to change the strategy because it's not doing anyone a good. Like it, it's hard. Like that, that's the balance as a manager is how, how do you outside think about those control, two things? It? It's outside of your control. Yeah, no, it is. You can't, um, can't be worried about it. I think it depends you know, on I, the structure too. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're managing an ETF where it's somewhat easier come, easier go, I think it's harder to do. If you're if you're running SMAs, like, and you have more of a relationship with the investor, I think you have a better chance of bringing everyone along with you 
uh, to the finish line, maybe fund even more so. I don't know. Um, but you, you can't throw up gates. Like nobody, nobody likes gates. I don't, and I don't think you can justify them either, but it probably does lead to a bit of performance. Well, it is interesting. I, you know, it's funny you're bringing this up because for some reason I went to this, I heard somewhere else. I was like, what is going on with those funds? And they're actually, they, they closed those, those funds liquidated at the end of 2022. So they don't even CGM focus fund doesn't even exist anymore. I don't know wow. if the assets trans, but I mean, you go to the site and it's like CGM focus funds have closed and it's like, there's a, an unclaimed state property link to like click on to like claim your, <laughs> for everybody. who, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. For people that didn't redeem their shares, you can kind of, if you're listening, you can still go and get your money or at least some of it. <laughs> yeah. Charles asks, is that a good argument for closed-end funds to f- despite those funds immediately trading at a discount? I think you need some ability to buy back your own stock as a closed-end fund, which you know managers don't want to do because it shrinks their assets, but equally it gets rid of that discount. And I think that's one of the reasons why you know Buffett, it's one of the advantages that Buffett has that he's got. When the market goes down, all anybody can do is sell Berkshire. They can't pull money out of Berkshire. And so Berkshire can trade at a discount, which creates an opportunity for him to buy back stock, which, you know, as long as the stock is bought back at a good time, it tends to be that generates better performance in the future. And to, to Jake's point, like, I think it, it is a, a case that like running these focus things in SMAs to some degree is good because you can talk to the end investor on a regular basis. You can help them stay the course. And the other thing is, Eric Balchunas has talked about this a lot. Like, I think you are seeing people use these things maybe a little bit better than they used to in the past. Like they kind of have the core and satellite thing. So they'll have their core portfolio and they'll take something like ARC and they'll size it smaller. And so when it's sized smaller relative to the rest of your portfolio, you're going to do a better job of sticking with it. And, you know, one thing you can say for ARC is, you know, they have not, they should have gotten a lot more redemptions than they did, given how bad the performance was coming off the peak. So they have gotten buy-in, I think, from their investors. Um, yeah, you know, whether you like so. the strategy or not, like they, a lot of these other funds in the past that have had those kind of performance numbers have had much bigger redemptions than ARC yeah. did. So that they have gotten buy-in at least. Yeah. That's one of the, I think that's the, the most impressive thing about those funds is that even as they fell over, they were still getting positive flows for a, for mm-hmm. a long time. I don't know if they're still positive, but I mean, they now they had a good year last year, had a great year last year. Hell of a marketing machine. What do you think is the most survivable factor for outside investors? I think, I, know, so I, an idea. I think it's got to be something that's pro-cyclical, right? It's got to be momentum. When you're doing really well, money's flooding in and you keep on doing really well. And then you have a 2009 where everybody's just running for cover and everything's kind of bombed out. And so it doesn't work for you then, but it didn't work for anybody anyway. But then you go back into the, a booming bull market and you, you're back into momentum land. One of, the, one of the cool things about momentum that a lot of people don't think is a lot of people might think like value is a more consistent factor than momentum, but that's actually not true. Like if you look at the consistency of like five-year periods, you know, producing a positive premium, like momentum is actually better than value. Um, it's, it's more consistent in terms of like not having the long, long periods of struggle than value is. So it's good from that perspective. But, you know, my, my big takeaway from value and momentum in my career has always been, <laughs> excuse me, sorry. Um, they work really well together and like, that's, it's something where people tend to get in these camps and they tend to say, you know, well, I'm a value guy, so that I shouldn't use momentum in any way, or I'm a momentum guy. Like they, they make, when, when you do the look at the data on them, they work really, really well together. And that doesn't mean you have to use them 50-50. Like, I mean, value people can use momentum for entry and exit. There's other ways you can use it. I mean, I think they work really well together and I think they're great compliments. So I, I try not to pick any more between them. Is that they're, long short or, or as the, just the long only versions of them? Just along only, like they work really well together. Um, There's a really good chart by Larry Swedro. You can kind of Google it to find it. You got to dig it up. I think it might be maybe on like, uh, he writes for a lot of different places. So you kind of got to look around, but it's like Larry Swedro factor, uh, uh, factor persistence maybe or something like that. And it, he'll show like value momentum and then and then periods, you know, one, three, five, 10, 20, the percentage of underperformance in any given year and how when you combine the factors together, you know, those percentage, those periods of possible underperformance fall significantly. Um, it's a really powerful visual um, that's out there that Larry's done work on. So it's, that's pretty cool to see, I think. I just realized, fellas, we haven't done Jake's veggies. Better do some vegetables, huh? All right. So, yeah, we wouldn't want to miss out on this one either. We're talking about slime molds. So, <laughs> God forbid that we miss that. Uh, so 
this passage that we're going to go is inspired by uh, some work that Robert Sapolsky has done in, in this a new book that he had just came out called Determined. And uh, so, like, what is a slime mold to begin with? It's like, you know, billions and zillions of, of these single cell amoebas that join forces and to grow and spread like a carpet over a surface. And they ooze around mindlessly in search of food. Only maybe they're not so mindless. Um, the individual cells are interconnected by these tubules that can stretch and contract depending on the direction. And somehow this collection of amoebas without any apparent centralization has this problem solving capabilities that you just like wouldn't believe. Uh, and researchers have done some really amazing experiments around this. So here, here's the setup. Imagine that you like spritz a dollop of slime mold into this little plastic well, and it leads down to two different corridors. And one of the corridors has a single oat flake in it. And the second corridor has two oat flakes. And apparently slime molds love oat flakes uh, for some reason. Um, but similar to the hive mind, like insect strategy of sending out scouts that, you know, bees and ants use, the slime mold expands into both corridors and it reaches both of the food sources. But within a few hours, the slime mold reacts and it, it retracts from the single oat flake corridor and it heads to the one with two. How does it know? Like, how do all these things that, you know, they, it's not like they're talking to each other. Well, uh, if uh, and if also like you could stick the slime mold into two different corridor mazes of differing lengths and it ends up finding the shorter route. Uh, you could stick it into a maze with a bunch of dead ends and this brainless slime mold finds an optimal solution to its beloved oak flake. Uh, and this uh, Japanese researcher did an interesting study. He took he plopped a slime mold down into this strangely shaped like walled off area with oat flakes at very specific locations around it. And at first, the mold expanded and formed tubules connecting all the different food sources to each other in a bunch of multiple ways. It's kind of a mess. Eventually, though, the tubes retracted and it, it, it ended up leaving close to the shortest path length connecting all the different food sources. Now, here's where it gets interesting. The walls that this researcher put it in outlined the exact shape of the coastline around Tokyo. And the slime molds were deposited where Tokyo would be on the map. So the oat flakes corresponded to the suburban train stations around Tokyo. And out, out of this slime mold emerged a pattern of tubule linkages that were statistically similar to the actual train lines linking the stations uh, that had been built. So a slime mold without a single neuron in it had done the work of numerous urban planners. Um, so <laughs> I'm just impressed that the humans got to the same point that the slime molds did. Well, I was going to make the joke that, uh, you know, I'm sure if we asked our friend Moses uh, Kagan what he thought about L.A. city planners, he might say they also were operating without a single neuron. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> sorry, stepped on it. I know. Uh, all right. So actually, even this like there's a in computer science, there's this kind of famous uh, it's called like the traveling salesman problem. And it's like an optimization thing. Uh, and it, it follows like if you're given a list of cities and the distances between each pair of the cities, what's the shortest possible route to visit each city once and return back to the origin city? Um, and actually, uh, Karl Menger, uh, who's the son of the favorite, uh, the famous Austrian economist Karl Menger, uh, was one of the first mathematicians to to make real progress on the the traveling salesman problem in like the 1930s. Um, and <clears throat> anyway, so. How does the slime mold actually do it? Like, let's get into that a little bit. It's it's actually a three-step process, and it, which mimics kind of the ants and bees strategies. Um, there's scouts that go out, right? And that's the slime mold kind of oozing all over. And then there's quality-dependent broadcasting, and then rich-get-richer recruitment. And so let's go back to like our first version of the two corridors where like one oat flake or two oat flakes. Uh, the slime mold will initially ooze into both corridors, and this is like the scouting phase. And then when the food is found, the tubules contract in the direction of the food, pulling the rest of the slime toward it. And the better the food source, the greater the contractile force generated in the tubules. And this is that quality-dependent broadcasting that's that's effectively a form of communication. Um, and the tubules, uh, the tubules that are a bit farther away dissipate the force by contracting in the same direction and increasing the force of contraction and recruiting more behind them, basically. And eventually it pulls the whole slime mold towards the optimal pathway. Uh, we'll, I'll spare you from going into all the gory details, but it turns out that the way that our neocortex wires itself is a very similar strategy to the slime mold. Uh, your neurons will send out scouts to connect with other neurons and they're climbing along these things called like radial glia and they're, they're, there's reinforcing mechanisms to, to attract other neurons to hook up where there's better connections found. Um, so 
basically like bees, ants, slime molds, your brain wiring. It all happens without a master plan uh, or constituent parts really knowing anything beyond their, mo their own immediate neighborhood. Uh, so, and then there's, there's one more little like branching mechanism that I'd like to share that I just because it's so freaking wild to me. All right. In your circulatory system, right? Each cell in your body is at most only a few cells away from a capillary, right? And that's where the blood feeds the nutrients, expels the waste, moves things around, right? Like it's the transportation system. Well, this, the circulatory system accomplishes this by growing around 48,000 miles of capillaries in your, in the average adult. So 48,000 miles worth of capillaries inside of you. And yet that 48,000 miles only takes up about 3% of the volume of your body. I mean, is it science is freaking amazing, isn't it? Uh, or nature, I guess is. So anyway, there's more than you wanted to know about slime molds. I don't have any real uh, investment takeaways from that other than just uh, the, the emergence of, of solving things, perhaps using simple systems uh, it can lead into much more complex behavior than you would ever imagine. Well, I'm, I'm wondering if I need to replace myself with slime molds to like build our multi-factor strategies. <laughs> Maybe I could like align oats in such a way that it can select the factors or something. Uh, I don't know. I had something, something I got to look at, you know, maybe I was worried about AI. Maybe I should really be worried about slime molds. <laughs> the original AI. I got some investing sort of thoughts from that. I was thinking like, you know, it kind of got me like momentum investing, like the initial scouts are the early guys in these stocks and then they kind of send the signal of the market that there's an opportunity here and then you've got the reinforcement of more investors coming in which drives momentum and then i don't know i was trying to like kind of weave in like some some things there so yeah that's farther than i made it like that's great i mean it's great stuff though jake it's you should have been a teacher dude well you are a teacher but you could have been a teacher <laughs> science teacher <clears throat> you guys have any strategies that look at biotics or anything like that no Too yeah it's, it's hard to look at those with factors you know i mean th those are a lot of you know figuring out what's happening with the the latest drug or whatever you know it's not the kind of stuff that you, know, you can really do do a good job with with factors has there been different points of like i know that it's happened where they're the basically like you could buy them for the cash on the balance sheet and therefore the pipeline was effectively free yeah but, That's where I was going to go. Yeah, but as there, I don't know if anybody's ever really like done a full quant treatment of that before. I've only just heard anecdotal, like, you know, gosh, the farm industry's bombed out. You can get all these pipelines for free. Yeah, yeah I don't know. I, I haven't seen that either. You know, the problem is they're always, you know, they're typically bleeding cash, and so like it's it's hard to look at the cash in the balance sheet because you can't get access to it, and they're bleeding it. And so you know, by the time you know if if it doesn't work out, like there is no cash, and so. It's like those those ones that trade like at a discount. It's just yeah, it's that's outside of my purview. I'm like I'm not great at that. Well, Toby, when, what about the studies on net nets though that are somewhat comparable with losing versus making money and the return differences? What what do you know about that? Yeah, I've never I've never seen anything looking specifically at biotech, but it just if you believe that the cohort will you know sort of justify its existence, which it seems to, in the sense that. They'll earn enough returns to justify to to justify the investment in it over time, even if it's not in any single one. Because you're going to have some giant winners, and you're going to have many losers. It seems that if you could get them at a discount to cash, discount to what everybody else has invested in, that, that should when that happens on occasion, when you get a whole cohort like that, that's what generated the question that we're in a point of time now where there's a all of them trading at a big discount to cash. The the whole industry or the sector or whatever you call it is trading at a discount to cash. It's like free lotto tickets. Yeah. This or, is the time to take mispriced them lotto tickets, perhaps. Mispriced, yeah. You know, the way oh. people can kind of figure that out on, on Validia, they can go, we we have a screener, so you can go like it's not all of it's free, but you can noodle around with it. It's under stock research and guru stock screener. And then you can add in healthcare and biotech and then see, you know, what companies are, you know, trading based on price to cash flow and a bunch of other different things that people want to play around with that. You guys want to make any predictions for what you think this year is going to hold in terms of, is it a momentum year? Is it a growth year? Is it a value year? Like, what do you think? No, I don't want to do that. <laughs> if, if I did, it would be the exact opposite of what I said. So I've, I've stopped calling value bottoms a long time ago because I, I think I'm fighting against myself by doing it. So, uh, so I guess from that perspective, I should call it a huge growth year and, and hope I'm wrong like I always am. 
I Justin. made a, what was it? Uh, what was my S and P 500, uh, prediction? Jack was it like 5,800 on the S and P. Oh yeah. We did a, uh, we, <laughs> We did like a joke episode of our podcast. You know, we, we we're very much against these S and P 500 targets. So we're like, the best way to prove that that is garbage is to like actually do it ourselves. So like the three of us on our podcast, like we both came up, we all, all three of us came up with targets for the year and predictions as to what would work and what wouldn't work. And so now we can just make fun of ourselves at the end of the year and show like that we've proven just like all the other guys that we have no idea how to do this. I wonder if you take the average, bullish. if that's if that's more accurate. Probably. If you take the like average, wisdom, probably. There's a wisdom of crowds thing that does seem to work in that yeah. stuff. Canceling of errors in either direction. Although if you take that approach and go back to early 2023, you know, the average strategist had the S&P flat for the year. So you would have been very wrong that way. And I guess we were, we were on the optimistic side, Justin, right? Relative to the strategies for this year. Yeah, like all three I mean, of us I were took, actually pretty, pretty bullish um, in our, in our targets. I took like 250 on the S. I tried to do, you know, do a methodology to it. At least I took like 250 in earnings on the S and P I assigned, I don't know, like a 24 multiple, which is a little bit high, but it's, you know, if you get, if rates are declining and, you know, we're sort of soft landing and growing, you know, maybe that's not unreasonable to think the multiple could be a little bit higher. And then, but, the, the, and so I try to back into it that way, but then the counter to that is like, I look at like the performance of, you know, these large cap growth names and really what drove the market. And I'm thinking to myself like, okay, Microsoft and Apple are both $3 trillion companies. They're going to be the ones to have to drive this thing higher. Like, what are we looking at? Like 4 trillion by the end of 2020? I don't know. You know, it's just like, I just have a hard time extrapolating that the past like two years of performance on those very large companies and kind of bringing it forward. Cause you just start talking numbers that are just like kind of ridiculous. It's AI. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm still trying to figure out how to put Copilot in my Microsoft Office suite. I can't figure it out. <laughs> I think I, I, I would have come up with that um, paper that you were discussing earlier, Jack, where COGS and PPE or whatever the whatever the ratio was. It feels like that's a very AI kind of outcome. Yeah, you know, I, I'm sure they, I'm sure that was partially used in the in the creation of it. Um, yeah, it's. I think it's really, I think it's really interesting because I, I just think like challenging, you know, whether it proves itself as as it gets tested further or not, like just the idea of challenging like these core beliefs is something I, th I think is really good to do occasionally, even even if the the end result is you still have the core belief that you always had. Like I, I think the that to me has always been helpful for me when I can ever I can take a step back and like challenge something that I that I really believe strongly. It seems it seems it seems hard to see where the bigger companies go from this point, but then when they hit a trillion, I probably would have said the same thing. So yeah. why not 10 trillion? Do you, do you guys have any thoughts? It's probably too much to the end to talk about this, but like wh what you think AI means for like the overall stock market, it's, it's something I think about a lot right now, but I don't really have, like we, we had Adam Butler on our podcast and he was talking about how like a lot of the impact really could be in like small companies, you know, two, three, four, five, 10, 20 person companies could really be the big beneficiary. And you know, obviously NVIDIA or whatever is going to sell a bunch of chips, but, you know, Microsoft has open AI, but, you know, it, it's unclear, like how this will actually impact the stock market, you know, because there's some people on Twitter calling for, you know, like a bubble that's greater than the dot-com bubble here because they see AI as a bigger technology and they see the bubble it could create being bigger. So I think about that a lot. I don't really have any conclusions, but I think about a lot that a lot these days. Well, there was an interesting paper that came out of... Uh, I there's a good account to follow that this, uh, I think he's a professor, Ethan Mollick, and he does a lot of AI chat GPT kind of research and post findings on it. And one of the things he posted was about, and I think it came out of Bain, I believe, I might be wrong, one of the big consulting firms. And what they did was they took consultants and got like a baseline measurement of productivity, output, quality of the work. And then they gave half of the population chat GPT and the other half not. And then had them do their work and then looked at the results and like how much, what was the output? What was the quality? And it turned out that um, the high-end consultant, like the, the people who were on the highest on the, on the baseline, didn't really move their needle very much upward. However, the people on the bottom were actually lifted quite a bit higher from off of the lows. So it might actually be providing, it's more of a floor than really like moving the ceiling up, um, which shoot from a income inequality, uh, you know, kind of average productivity per worker type of uh, lens of the world, like that actually could be really encouraging. Like, you know, we, we have a lot of disparity right now in the US in 
you know, wealth and and wages and the U.S. worker hasn't really participated as well as the U.S. corporations have in growing the pie over the last, well, our lifetimes really. But um, but yeah, if, if AI was somehow to boost their productivity in a way that made them closer to you know the the higher end, uh, that that could be really encouraging. I don't know. Well, and I think also to, to to that point, you know, if you can get a boost in productivity and it helps add to the profitability of companies that are really engaging in this, whether they're able to do more with less, they're able to get more from their existing workforce, you know, and then you look at all the future cash flows and then bring them back to now, how much is that worth? I mean, that's worth probably trillions of dollars if it comes to fruition. Um, I know, think it's more I, likely to be everybody's going to be standing on their tippy toes trying to see. Yeah, I think grade. it becomes table stakes too. You just like when, when at one point, if you had a dot com in your name, you were that 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 was enough to like list on the stock market, and then after a while, it just became like a website and a dot com were just table stakes. But I'm talking about the, I guess, the underlying profitability of of firms and how it could. But listen, margins are high already historically, so you know there's a lot of people that think that they have to revert down it's just you know there is a upside case here which is you know ai is a technology that sort of level sets or sets the bar higher i should say or makes makes companies more profitable potentially and then what is that what is the true value of that in today's dollar terms i don't know it's just an when, interesting thing to think about whenever i try to predict this i always think back to myself like in the late 90s and the internet and like what i would have thought would have happened with the internet and what actually happened with the internet and they're so different than each other that I, I pretty much realize, like, I have no clue, like, what this is going to mean. I, I mean, I, I've used this enough to think it's going to be a huge impact on our society in a lot of different ways. But what that is, like, I'm just not smart enough to figure it out. And on that note, it's <laughs> it's uh, it's time. If we if folks want to follow along with what you're doing or get in contact, what's the best way of doing that? Yeah, ch uh, check us out at validia.com. We also have the podcast Excess Returns. You can hit Jack and I up on Twitter. I'm at JJ Carbono, and Jack is at, at Practical Quant. Thanks, gents. Good seeing you, boys. Thanks for having Thanks, us. It's great to be back. Thanks, JT. We'll be back Good next week. week. See ya.